when I think of my time in Burma, um, you know, no doubt there's, you know, there's a lot of canonical literature. To give you a sense, um, supposedly the, the Buddha's attendant and cousin Ananda, he had this type of mind where he memorized all of the teachings that the Buddha taught. And supposedly, uh, uh, Pali is actually an oral language, not a written language. And so it was passed on for 500 years. <coughs> and then it was transliter transliterated into uh, banana palms in Sri Lanka, in Sri Lankan. And some Burmese monks thought, could it really be possible to memorize this entire Tipitaka, the three baskets of discipline or ethics, the Abhidhamma, psychology, and the suttas, the discourses. And it turned out that two monks, like about 10, no, actually about 15, 25 years ago, the end of last century, <laughs> um, memorized the whole Tipitaka. And a friend of mine who's a monk there actually met one of those monks and asked him, how long does it take to recite, and, and he said that it takes me, I recite eight hours a day, and it takes me a month and a half to complete from the beginning to the end. That's quite a lot. But the point that I'm getting also, yes, there's a lot of voluminous, beautiful, incredible literature, canonical literature on the teachings of the Dharma, and to me, it can be boiled down to one word. You could say kindness. It has, of course, within it wisdom, compassion. It said that when the Buddha died, and um, someone had found a Nanda crying in the forest, and he was just repeating over and over and over and over again about the Buddha. He was just saying he was just so kind. He was just so kind. He was just so kind. You know, he could have said a lot of things. Supreme knower of gods and men and all thus gone and all types of things. But what was come down to Ananda? He was just so kind. And Henry James, um, he says that there's three very important um, teachings for the spiritual life. It comes down to three, he says. He says the first one is to be kind. And the second one is to be kind. And the third one is to be kind. <sighs> when I think of my time living with these forest monks, I, I really can say from my own experience that it was there was a legacy of kindness that was being passed on from one generation to the next a legacy of great kindness kindness that understands about suffering and not wanting to cause pain the qualities of ahimsa qualities of non-harming. The poet Naomi Shiab Nye 
She likes to call herself an American Palestinian poet. And her poem is called Kindness. And often I read this at the end of the talk, but I'm doing it at the beginning. And she says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. And how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating corn and chicken that they'll stare out those windows forever. And before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian in a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road, and you must see how this could be you. And how that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans. And a simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing, and you must wake up with sorrow. And you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of that cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters, to purchase bread. It's only kindness that raises his head from the crowd of the world to say it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. <clears throat> Feeling into that place of these teachings of kindness. Okay, talk's done. That's it. <laughs> That's it. It's an old saying, if you can improve the silence and speak. Sometimes it's hard to do. <clears throat> this teaching, this legacy of kindness. Last March, um, my wife and I were um, in South Africa, we were offering some teachings there and also got to see some of the place. And one place we went to was very remarkable. It's outside of Johannesburg in a big plateau area. And it's called the Cradle of Humankind. And um, supposedly this is where one of the places where uh, all humanoids, humans, all hominoids come from. 
and there's uh, still an active archaeological dig that's that's happening there, and they're still finding fossils and so forth. And then there's a, an incredible, an incredible um, museum or exhibit. It's actually a, a World Heritage Site. And as you uh, walk towards the front entrance to this very vast exhibit on the cradle of humankind, there's a like almost like a rainbow. It's a helix of a human genome, the DNA structure. And there's all types of information about this. And of course, how at one point there was these single-cell organisms that began to multiply and so forth into um, what we have now. But of course, um, it keeps on going. And you know, I'm just waiting for the first kid to be born with a Bluetooth in the ear. Because it keeps on evolving. Things keep on evolving. It's been, that's how the Borg came about in Star Trek. <coughs> you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. <laughs> but it's amazing to see with this genome, this DNA structure, this helix, that the end is this, all this, the science behind a human being. And they explained, of course, because of migration, those that lived closer to the sun, their skin got a little bit darker. Those that lived further away from the intensity of the sun got a little bit lighter. So there's all the science behind all of this uh, diversity that we see in human beings. But the ultimate thing that it said was that actually, from the scientific point of view, we are 99.9% the same. It's that little tiny thing. 99.99% the same. Graduate school that I went to, what won me over, I had to go to the bathroom, checking out, I was checking out different graduate schools, and I went to the bathroom, and on the wall it said, peace and love is the answer, what is the question? I knew this is where I want to go. <laughs> if, if, if people are thinking like this, I, I like that type of thought. What is the question? If it's like infinitesimal, 99.99% the same, what is the question? We live in a mystery. Of course, the world tries to orient and have some sense of meaning to things, but it's pretty darn mysterious. I was... I've been having these wonderful conversations with my oldest son. <coughs> he's, he's at um, UC Berkeley, and he's in a graduate program in astrophysics. And he's actually teaching at a community college, and I was getting done teaching class at night at the hospital. So we would, he would be driving home, I'd be driving home, and we'd spend an hour together talking. I'm trying to understand what the heck is he doing. <laughs> and um, he's really into dark energy and you know what is dark energy and dark energy is this type of a force that is um, they actually first of all they don't know what it is but it's 
expanding the universe. Now, I asked, well, what do you mean it's expanding the universe? Isn't the universe the universe? Like, what could be behind the universe? How can you expand into something that is it? What's, what's after that? Don't know. What's dark energy? He don't know. What's pushing it? Don't know. Like, what the hell's going on here? And, he, and his research project is trying to, trying to when there's an exploding star, it can act kind of like a buoy and other exploding stars. And because of the exploding stars, you can begin to track and watch how it's accelerating and its expansion to figure out how fast the universe is expanding. But where's it expanding into? He didn't know. What is pushing it? Don't know. It's pretty darn mysterious. Mary Grace, the founding teacher of Insight Santa Cruz, she sometimes will talk about in her Dharma, talk about um, one of the Zen um, people that, that brought um, the Dharma to China. His name was Bodhidharma. And evidently, he was this very tall redhead, very formidable and unusual in appearance. And he evidently came to the court of the king, and the king was definitely into like spiritual things and trying to understand what is this um, life? And evidently, uh, you know, Bodhidharma is pretty tall, much taller than a lot of other people. And the king looks out and sees this kind of this wild, red-haired, kind of is uh, in rag robes, like. And at the end, after after a while, and the people left, the king said to Bodhidharma to come over, and started asking him, "Who are you?" And supposedly he looked at him and he said. Don't know. And then he turned around and walked away. <laughs> it shook up the king big time. There's a mystery here. I appreciated um, Alice's question. Get exactly how it was this morning, like, but like, what's the point? Is that something? What's the point of all this? Right, yeah. It's a good question. So I'll try to talk about that too a little bit. But even having that question, that's a reflection of wanting to know. The love of truth, what is this? What is this? To wonder. And it's very interesting because not everyone thinks this that way. This is a very haunting kind of comment from St. Augustine in the year 399. <coughs> 399 is a long time ago. But he says, People travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers and the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder about the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. It's kind of a haunting statement, walking right past themselves without ever wondering. So that question, what is this? This is this love of truth.
the teachings of the Dharma, this very important teaching on what's called the factors of awakening. There's been some reference of that within the retreat. And the first is mindfulness, this quality of awareness. And the second is investigation. And I, I love this about the teachings of the Dharma that the Buddha, there's so many teachings like, don't believe me or the teacher because the teacher says so. Don't believe the books because the books say so. Don't believe by hearsay. See for yourself with your own direct experience. I love this about the teaching because it's relying on our own investigation. What is this? knowing that um, one day it will be otherwise. What is this? This was the deep question of Siddhartha Gautama that eventually, um, you know, him leaving and going into the forest and trying to understand what is this life? And it's a, it's a challenging journey for all of us I know in our individual practice discussions, we've been hearing from so many of, um, it's not all peachy, rosy, creamy uh, inside here. There's lots of pain and, and, uh, and you know, we're developing ways to investigate it, to learn from it. It takes a lot of courage to begin to turn in And at first, when we begin to turn in, it may not necessarily be a pretty picture. Francis Fenelon says, this is written in the Middle Age, around those times. He's a monk. He says, as the light of awareness increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. You're laughing because you know. <laughs> I know too. And we're amazed at our form of blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> we never could have believed we'd harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. And while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we, and we can become filled with horror. So don't worry, it gets better. It <laughs> <coughs> says, bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. This is why mindfulness plays such an important role. Once we become aware, we can begin to see that we are entangled and potentially begin to get ourselves out of the tangle. So I'm a teacher, Tampu Lucero, he used to have these um, beautiful teachings of like, if you know that greed is arising, he would say, you're, you're, you're gaining knowledge. If you don't know, you're accumulating ignorance. 
If you know that hatred is arising, you're gaining knowledge. If you don't know, you're accumulating ignorance. So the, the, the essence is this knowing. The knowing of what's here is giving us knowledge. And are willing to, to investigate, to look. As we've been talking about the second arrow, and <clears throat> Franz Kafka puts it this way, you know, you have suffering and you have your choice in whether you want to deal with it or not, and if you don't deal with it, you get two sufferings. I'd rather have one. So this turning in. And you know, as much as you try to turn away, just when you're not looking, the little knock on the door, it's here. It doesn't really go away. The more we push it away, the pushing it away sets on the trajectory for it to rise again. So our practice is inviting us to begin to meet it, to allow it. Beautiful poem that Ayla read earlier today at the end of the yoga, Allow by Dana Falls. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. It's a great teaching. In Jennifer Wellwood, she says very radically, this turning in, says, I'm willing to experience my aloneness. And then I discover connection everywhere. I turn to face my fears, and I meet the warrior who lives within. Open to my loss, and I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end for each condition I flee from. It pursues me while each condition I welcome can transform me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. <clears throat> it's a very radical notion to begin to turn into what's here. And that turning into what's here is that turning into our story, to our lives. Yeah. So this story, our lives, who, who is this sense of self? We, you've heard from some the teachings that we've offered about this sense of non-self. And of course, this goes up against just about everything American that we know. I mean, what do you mean I'm not myself? And of course, Descartes declared way back, I think, therefore I am, kind of like the hallmark of Western narcissistic ego civilization. I think, therefore I am. Actually, I don't think he was probably thinking as a narcissist, I'm bringing that on, but there's this <laughs> epic of I, me, and my. And so it's a, an incredibly radical teaching within the Dharma. What do you mean, what is this sense of non-self? It's a really very interesting thing, so I want to speak about that a little bit.
and it does rub up against our you know our culture our identification our identity but from the dharma point of view is is the self found in the head here the body here the nails the teeth the skin where where is it found where is this i found As a matter of fact, some neuroscientists have um, been searching physiologically about a self and are unable to find it. Uh, Rick Hansen has a thing in, in Richard Mendius. He's a Rick is a neuropsychologist and Rick, Richard Mendius is a neurologist. And he says, from um, a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built on many subsystems with no fixed center. It's a fabrication, they say. It's very interesting. And Dan Siegel, I like his definition, he goes, the self is actually a plural verb rather than a singular now, but this self and this body, is it me? Do you know that the body makes a new stomach lining every five days, makes a new liver every six weeks, replaces new head here except mine every two to five years, <laughs> replaces new eyebrows every three to five months, grows new skin once a month, replaces the body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years, 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and they'll be replaced by new cells all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they're atoms. So if you think you're your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. And the Buddha teaches in the second discourse that he ever offered called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the teachings of non-self, where he talks about the three marks of existence of dissatisfactoriness, impermanence, and the selfless nature of things. But he says, if there was a self, then the self could say, don't age, don't get sick, don't die. Self could say, here, stay on the head. Or self could say, prostate gland, don't get larger and start constricting my, my urine flow. It's just doing its own thing. I didn't send it a text or an email or a call to start getting larger. It just does these things. I was teaching a day long on the th parts of the body practice and a friend of mine, a psychiatrist, was um, taking it and that night he wrote me a note to say hello and thank me for the day, but then he said it was a very disabusive experience and I actually got a little scared because I didn't know what disabusive meant and was he accusing me of abusing him? His, 
So I had to go look it up in the dictionary. And actually, I love the word disabusive. It's actually a great description of this practice because um, disabusive is this notion of like what you think is, is not. And things get kind of turned upside down. There's a sense of not much bearing. And, it's, and, and, and so this practice at times can be disabusive. I'm not me. What do you mean? Look in the mirror. This is me. So there's a kind of a disabusive, like where can we find our bearings? Even poor Alice in Alice in Wonderland says the caterpillar and Alice, they looked at each other for some time in silence and at last the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in languid, sleepy language. Who are you? Said the caterpillar. And Alice replied, feeling this and also thinking, this is not a very encouraging and opening uh, for conversation. I, and she said, well, I, I, I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean, said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. And Alice said, I, I, I can't explain myself. I'm afraid, sir, because I'm not myself, you see. Who's the self? I don't have it here with me, but there's a beautiful, what's sometimes known as uh, in the Dharma as the lion's roar. And it's a, it's kind of the, what's been attributed to that when the Buddha fully awakened. Uh, these were the words that he uh, said, and it was about breaking the, the the foundation, the ridge pole of the house. The house has been seen. I've experienced the unconditioned, and um, I, it's very poetic. I'm sorry, I'm not able to share with you the full verses of this lion's roar, but. The thing that I want to talk about that he, he was re- referring to that I've experienced the unconditioned. And to me, some of what perhaps takes out some of the mystery of the teachings of, of the selfless nature of things or non-self is that if the, if the Buddha is implying that he's experienced the unconditioned, then there must be a conditioned. And to me, what makes the most sense, the condition is our story, our narrative, our life. How could it not be? Now, of course, on one sense, this body is totally, I mean, we have maybe the idea that I have control. I can pick up my hand now and I can scratch the side of my face. But if I had a stroke, I'm not going to be able to do that or something else happened. And so there is a certain unreliable, selfless nature of the body just does what it does. Again, as I told you, my prostate gland started getting bigger. I did not invite it. So there is that aspect of it. But then from, from the story, our narrative, like, you know, to me, what makes the most sense is that the Buddha saw through all of the conditioning. They were filled with greed, hatred, and ignorance. They were filled with not seeing clearly into the nature of things, misconceptions of looking for peace or happiness outside of himself. To me, this is one of the, the most liberating aspects of these teachings of the Dharma is the possibility that we can begin to see through these stories that we've told ourselves that have enslaved us. 
Margaret Weekly. She writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. But when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we have a chance at changing. And to me, this is what the Buddha saw through all this self-referencing, misconceptions. But these conceptions start really early in our lives. I mean, some theorists even talk about the development prenatally while we're in the womb, that we're gaining impressions to things. And of course, if you have beliefs about past lives, then perhaps uh, there's even more contributing to these things. And of course, we understand from a chromosome point of view, we're connected from past generations, but who inhabited those chromosomes that we have inherited now? So science will say the physical parts are there, but what about the psychical parts? If we look back in our past, we would go, OMG. There is saints and there is not saints. <laughs> and... Um, So we perhaps have come in with a lot. If you have some thoughts that maybe that might be so, but even, even so, in this womb, there's things that are going on that we know from science that uh, in the womb there can be reactions to things. Of course, the birth experience, that's a big one. We've all birthed. We've either fought our way out or were cut out and pulled out or perhaps we just said, oh my God, I'm just kind of just, just give up and just, you know. But those are powerful imprints on an organism. Then, of course, the big thing happened too after that. The real big thing. We got the scissors and we cut the cord. That's a big moment. impressionable that we are, like a piece of clay, we get molded and shaped. We didn't come in with prejudice and bias, we, we learned it. Actually, for many of us, almost all of us, we came in in a pretty good place in the sense that we were, we pretty much really didn't care what other people thought. I never saw an infant get a little hung up if they're sitting in front of a whole group of people and they poop, or they fart, or they pee, <laughs> or they'll laugh, or they'll cry. They'll just, the infants are just totally themselves. They're like, like the Buddha incarnate. They're like the sovereign nature. They have not been shamed yet. They're so full of themselves. So John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Myla, they wrote a very beautiful book called Everyday Blessings, The Art of Mindful Parenting. And they speak about three very important qualities in bringing up children. And 
One is empathy, the other is acceptance, and the other one that I, at first was like, what are they talking about? They call sovereignty. But they explain the word sovereignty is honoring your child's sovereign nature. That we come in so full of ourselves and, and to be who we are. And of course, you know, hopefully our surroundings and caregivers and parents do the best they can to try to preserve that as best we can. But, but of course, along the way, we, we get shamed, we get slammed, we get wounded. Our personality grows and develops. I'm not sure who it was, but someone says, well, by the time you're 50, you get the face you deserve. But, you know, it can change too. If we become awake, if we begin to move from self-referencing to self-awareness, then everything is possible. This is the journey from self-referencing, which is feeding that sense of the narrative and the stories that enslave us, to potentially self-awareness that begins to see that referencing and can begin to make some changes. Begin to see that these stories that I've told myself are limited definitions. But these conditionings are very, they happen at ages where we don't have the mindfulness and the insight now that we did at that time. We, we didn't have that. I've said this before, um, when I was young, I, I still do, I love peanuts. And my grandma knew that and she'd have bowls of peanuts. Sundays we'd go over to grandma's house and she'd have peanuts and I'd come over, I'd hug everyone and the next thing you know I'm beeline into the peanut jar, peanut bowl. And, and my uncle, he, he would begin to see this pattern of Bobby going for the peanuts. And he probably didn't have that much awareness in knowing what he was doing, but he decided that this was a joke. And so he, he, would, he would start announcing when I'd going towards the peanuts, here comes the claw, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. But you know, I got fingers, I don't have a claw. <laughs> but the feeling was, I felt very shamed. I... I started not to go to the peanuts anymore. I was scared that Uncle Sidney was going to make fun of me. There's a friend of mine. His mother committed suicide, and his father was an early retired submarine commander. Had four tall boys growing up in a small apartment, and my friend was tall and clumsy. It was a difficult situation. And his father began to, because he was clumsy, he used to give him a nickname and used to call him, you've probably heard of the children's story about King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, he was called King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. Last June, I was in teaching a retreat, and a woman shared with me during individual practice discussion that she says, ever since the only thing I ever know from my mother was always her saying to me, I wish I didn't have you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You feel that? It's like, like the pain that sometimes it, and we don't know any better growing up and begin to identify that I'm worthless, I'm not lovable. 
used to hear me, it's a good thing you have your brother. He'll be good in business. I don't know about you. <laughs> or, you're not the singer in the family. You got all thumbs. So all types of little messages. And we're so impressionable. How do we know any better? We're, we're still developing our own sense of personality. And so we take on this self-referencing, and this is all that we know. How could we not know anything different? We couldn't know anything different. As we're growing in self-awareness, we begin to understand more of the self-referencing. It's like shocking, you know, like to begin to become aware of what it is that I'm telling myself all the time. I hear these stories all the time. This, I remember one time in a class, someone saying, I call myself every day a dummy. I just, I didn't realize that this is what I do. And someone said something much worse. I won't say it. And um, it's incredible, this self-referencing and what an impact it has on ourselves. And of course, if we're unmindful, how it spreads out to others near and far. So this is, to me, the most liberating aspects of these teachings is the possibility that we can grow in self-awareness and begin to understand the self-referencing. And the thing is, we can't bypass this self-referencing or our personality, our narrative, our story. That would be psychological or spiritual bypassing. So sometimes sitting with ourselves is not recommended if you're normally sedated, as a phys would say, because we sit and see. You know, it's the Hall of Mirrors starring me, myself, and I. I, 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 I. There's a lot here going on. But the good news is if you really want to be free, we need to know where we get stuck, where we get caught, where we're not seeing clearly. Otherwise, it continues on. That's so why Pema Chodron says about spiritual warriors that um, for regular people it might be really bad news if you begin experiencing anger, sadness, fear, jealousy, shame, confusion, rage. But she says for those that have a hunger to know the truth and that want to be free, this is not bad news. It's good news. It's good news because it's showing you exactly where you are stuck and where you actually need to bring more attention to rather than less. It's a kind of a radical teaching. And at the same time, if that desire is to become more free, it may be very helpful to know where are the places where I'm not free, where I am stuck, where I'm not seeing clearly, where I'm holding on, where I'm pushing away. And that's why this practice then can become your life as a practice, whether you're sitting here or you're out in Soquel <laughs> or wherever you are, <laughs> Westside Santa Cruz, like the world becomes our practice because the meditation hall is everything that happens in our life. And life will show you very clearly and very quickly all the places where you are stuck, where you're pushing away or holding on to, where you're not seeing clearly, if we begin to really bring this practice into our life as a way of life. I hope and I trust that you understand what I'm saying. That this, that this is our life, this practice. And growing up in this world, and you know, we're learning from one another, and we're learning what happiness is, and this and that, and 
And yet it's, it's all fleeting. So again, Alice has asked this question, what, what is this? What's, what's the point of this? And, you know, and the point is, you know, as Bruce Shirley is suffering and the end of suffering to begin to see more clearly into these places where we are asleep or stuck, unaware. It's very interesting, you know, in, in the Buddhism and Dharma, all the suffering can be boiled down to three aspects, greed, hatred, and ignorance. And really, in, in Dharma psychology, the most insidious, the most foundational suffering is ignorance, is not seeing clearly. And because of that ignorance, it gives rise to greed and hatred. So the opposite of um, ignorance or unawareness is awareness. This is why the very first factor of awakening is mindfulness. And then from there, the next one is investigation. And we begin to get interested in what's there, and it builds up our energy and a sense of joy and calmness and one-pointedness and so forth. That quality of investigation into the places we get caught, where we get stuck, where we're not seeing clearly. And this not seeing clearly gives rise to many misconceptions the teacher Tampulo Cero used to say, midnight is dark, the full moon is dark, I mean, the, the dark of the night is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but he says, darkest of all is ignorance. And so our practice is to begin to bring more of the light of awareness. And because of that unawareness, it can give rise to, um, this is one of the, most amazing discoveries of the Buddha was these causes of suffering that he, that he identified as craving. But of course that craving comes from the sense of ignorance, misconceptions. I'd like to just read to you a very beautiful rendering that Achan Amaro He says, the noble truth of the cause of suffering is craving, and it's craving that is compelling and intoxicating. And it causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. And namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something or someone, and the craving to feel nothing. And it's um, such a powerful discovery of suffering and of its causes, namely because of this unawareness that gives rise to craving, craving to try to find happiness and peace. The craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. And in sensual delight, it's like the libidinal instinct, eros, it's like to feel good. There's many things that give us pleasure. Food, sex, shopping. 
Yeah, Amazon. I don't work for Amazon. Very clever. One click shot of opioids. Feels so good. This wanting, this thirsting. The craving to be someone. The craving to feel nothing. These are all sourced in misconceptions, as if the belief that somehow I can find this happiness outside of me. Remember one time, I put something on Facebook, and um, you know, you know, if some people here use Facebook. I don't work for Facebook. Anybody use it? Yeah. Probably many, probably people don't want to raise their hand and admit it. <laughs> and um, I saw at one point, I put something on there and I got 199 likes. And I watched my mind and heart. I wanted 200. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is 200 going to do? Like, it, will that be the final approval to know that I am actually okay? But if I have the belief that somehow the, the more likes I get, the more my sense of my own self-worth, I continue to suffer. But I am dependent upon you or the outside world to verify my sense of self-worth. It's very powerful. I actually told this story in another retreat recently, and so somebody, they left me a note, and it, it says, to Bob, you get infinite likes. <laughs> Always bowing to you, Becky. So I got an infinite like card. And you know, that, that felt good for a minute, but then I want two infinite <laughs> like cards. Will two be enough? I don't know. I don't think so. Because the, the heart of the matter is I am dependent upon all of these things for my self-worth. It's never going to be enough. And it's very seductive, these likes or these sensual desires and pleasures. Because, you know, like when I look at it, like with myself, like, you know, sensual desire, it's pleasurable. It feels good. And I'm really interested. What is it that feels so good about it? Well, it feels good because it's pleasurable, number one. Number two, there's, there's a sense of intimacy to connectedness. And there's also this other sense that I kind of like lose myself. I kind of like that. Anybody ever have that experience? Pleasure, interconnected, losing yourself. It's very seductive because it feels so good. I just want more. It's very interesting to follow your desires. I was even looking at during this retreat. It might seem so odd to the world, but I was just looking at ownership, like, you know, like, I own a car. I own these clothes. And, like, what does the sense of ownership do for me? It's like the sense of, like, I have some control now. This is mine. My meditation bench, yeah? I even put my name on it. It's mine. <laughs> but what does that mean? Even the sense of ownership, this is mine. Yeah, it's very powerful. What does that mean? This is mine. Oh, this pleasure, 
that I lose myself into. And it works for a while, but then it goes away. Then I have to get it again. The addictive quality. And, you know, I don't want to say and paint a bad picture about all this craving and wanting to feel good. You know, and from the Dharma point of view, it's not necessarily morally wrong. It's just that it's one of the causes of suffering. And it's based on this unawareness that if I have the belief that something outside of me is going to give it to me, as we know, everything is changing. We can't hold on to it. It comes and it goes. So you could say that, yes, some of you have heard this, like the theme song for sensual delight is I just can't get no satisfaction. No, how much I try, I try and I try. I just can't get no satisfaction because it's fleeting. And the craving to be someone is like I'm just looking for love in all the wrong places. And that last one, the craving to feel nothing, annihilation, just if, if I just don't have to feel it, it just won't be there. But yet it's here. I'll also say that, you know, as human beings, for many of us, we, we do have those longings for intimacy, for connection. Perhaps some of the deepest pain is the sense of being separated or made to feel invisible. How many times have you been to places where no, you don't even get acknowledged, a sense of invisibility, of disconnected, separate, such a deep pain. Our longing for so many is to be back home again. So perhaps this longing for intimacy, this longing for connection, this longing... Um, You know, maybe it's a very beautiful thing that we have as human beings, but perhaps what the Buddha discovered that it may not be necessarily found outside, but inside. Yes, we can partner in life or not, and we can have things or not, but to know inside ourselves with our own heart So I want to just support our, our longings. Um, you know, maybe it's like to, to return back home. I mean, we were once in a place inside that womb where we were connected. And then, yeah, again, that cord was cut. And it's been every man and every woman for themselves ever since. Trying to find our way back home. But where is home? That's what I want to say. Where is home to be found? Is it inside? Is it outside? So intertwined with these, so shared about these narratives, these stories of our own self-referencing that of course have come out of our own experience of life, not to be denied. 
And of course, continuing to live in this self-referencing, perhaps we continue to believe in finding and searching for these places of happiness outside of us that keep on spinning out. And as we begin to grow with self-awareness, beginning to see through the self-referencing, perhaps we begin to discover that inside our own heart can be our home. So let's just sit for a minute and breathe in and out. And perhaps we can, for this moment, invite ourselves to be at home inside our own being. My teacher, Tampulo Cerro, he used to offer this very beautiful meditation as a way of, um, he said, this is a good meditation to die with, and it's also a good meditation to experience deep freedom. And so as we breathe in and out, with an in-breath and an out-breath, experiencing the relinquishing of greed, and in its place gives rise to contentment and ease. And breathing in and out, relinquishing the hatred, the aversion, and in its place, giving rise to the open, kind heart. Breathing in and breathing out with the relinquishing of unawareness and collecting awareness the clarity of mind and heart, the relinquishing, the understanding, the relinquishing of greed and hatred and in its place giving rise to contentment and open-heartedness. These are the sublime teachings of the Buddha. Breathing in and breathing out, experiencing in these breaths contentment, open-heartedness, and clarity of mind. So thank you. This is the possibility that we can begin to relinquish the craving, the grasping, and in its place gives rise to contentment. There is no richer, there's nothing richer than being content. Nothing more spacious than the open heart. Nothing more clear is the relinquishing of 
greed and hatred and not seeing clearly that gives rise to deep wisdom and compassion. Feeling that sense of connection and interconnection, even the air that we're breathing is a gift from this plant world and reciprocation, our exhalation is offering some nourishment to them. The sense of being connected. Interconnected. So I'll end with this reading from Anne Bingham. It's called, It Is Enough. To know that the atoms of my body will remain. To think of them rising through the roots of a great oak. To live in the leaves, the branches, and twigs. Perhaps to feed a crimson peony or blue iris or the broccoli or perhaps some atoms resting on the water. Then they freeze and thaw with the seasons. Some atoms might become a bit of a fluff on the wing of a chickadee. To feel the breeze and to know the support of air, some might even drift up and up into space. Stardust returning from whence it came. It is enough to know that so long as there is a universe, I am a part of it. So thank you, and um, time for walking meditation, and um, you feel inclined to go outside, letting yourself just feel this earth. It's below you, the stars above. There's actually going to be a super moon tomorrow night, but it's pretty big now if it's somewhat clear. It was a little cloudy earlier, but just connecting with the environment, the night sounds, the woods, the house, the beings that we are part of the family of things. See you back here soon.